challenge that you guys did great, so thank you for that. Philippians chapter 2. The tag for today's message is working it out. Working it out. This morning we are going to look at verses 12 through 30 of the second chapter of Philippians. It's kind of an extended passage. I'm going to try to do my best to cover as much as possible in it. If you're there in Philippians chapter 2, say there. Anybody still flipping? All right. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. I'm going to read through verse 16. The Bible says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputing. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Pulling forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labor in vain. Working it out. Before we get started, you just join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I. Thank you for this day. I thank you, Lord, for every single person that you brought here this morning, God. I pray that as we open up your word and we study the text, that you would speak to us, that you would transform and convict minds and hearts. I pray there's nobody here that was Christ as Savior, that they would see the glory and majesty of the gospel, that they would accept the call to come to him, Lord. Lord, I pray that as I present the message this morning, you would hide me behind the cross, that you would give me clarity of speech, that you would help me to be concise and to glorify and exalt your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, this, this is the back half of the exhortation the Apostle Paul is giving to the church at Philippi, which started in verse 27. At the beginning of chapter 2, we saw that the Apostle Paul called the church there to unity through humility. And then last week, we looked at the ultimate example of humility and the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this week, as Paul continues this exhortation to the church at Philippi, he challenged the church there to obedience before God. How do you follow up verses 6 through 11? That beautiful Christological passage where the truths just leave us in amazement and awe of who Christ is and what he's done. And we see that in verse 12, the Apostle Paul begins with the word wherefore or therefore. I've heard it said that anytime you see the word therefore when you're reading the Bible, you need to figure out what it's there for. This word therefore is connecting verses 6 to 11 to verses 12 and 13. What the Apostle Paul is saying is therefore because Christ left the glories of heaven, taking the form of a servant and died on the cross for our sins, that we are then to continue in obedience, working out our own salvation. I don't know about you, but at first glance of 
verse 12 and seeing this phrase, working out your own salvation, there's an immediate tension that starts to develop in my mind. You know, I begin to wonder, what exactly is the Apostle Paul talking about? How do I work out my salvation? To anybody that understands the grace of God, there's red flags that immediately start to go off as you pass through this text as we know that salvation is something that is given to us freely. So how do we work it out? Is the Apostle Paul advocating for a works-based righteousness? This idea of work and salvation going together seems antithetical to the gospel message of grace. We know that Paul tells Titus that it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. And he told the church at Ephesus that it's by grace that you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. And it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we know that salvation is not something that we're able to earn. So we're not working out our salvation trying to earn it. But then there's other people that approach this text and they say, well, you may not be trying to earn your salvation, but if we have to work it out, then maybe salvation is something that we can lose. But again, as we turn to the page of the scripture, we see in John chapter 10 where Jesus says, I give them eternal life and every, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Amen. Paul tells the Ephesian church to not grieve the Holy Spirit. He says that the Holy Spirit has sealed them for the day of redemption. In Romans, the Apostle Paul writes to the Church there, he says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. The Apostle Paul pretty much covered anything that you could have thought of. If you said, well, maybe this can separate me from love, from God's love, the Apostle Paul says, no. So salvation is not something that we can earn and it's not something that we're able to lose. What exactly does the Apostle Paul mean when he says to work out your salvation? In the original language, to work out means to continually work to bring something to completion, to bring it to fruition. This is a continuation, as I said, of the command the Apostle Paul gave starting in verse 27. In verse 27, if you remember, the Apostle Paul told the church to live lives worthy of of the gospel. So this working out of your own salvation is the active sanctification that is going on in the lives of believers. Sanctification is a big theological word that simply means being made into the image of Christ, becoming more like Christ. After we call upon Christ for salvation, after we put our faith in Him, we see in Romans 8, 29, that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. We're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So when you put faith in Christ, then this sanctifying works begin in your life where the things you used to do, you didn't do them anymore. Where you start to walk a little different, start to talk a little different, and your life starts to become an example and a replica of Jesus Christ. Paul is calling the Philippian church to obedience, to growth. He's calling them to live as Christians. We're not working for 
our salvation, but rather we are to work out our salvation. Our salvation is something that is already accomplished. Christ, when he was on the cross, he said, it is finished, and finished it is. There's nothing that we can do to earn or to work for when it comes to our salvation, but rather the works which we produce and the life which we live flow out of what God has already done for us. And I've already said that Christianity is not a do religion. Every other religion tells you do this, do that. But rather Christianity is a done religion. See, same principle that James gives us in James chapter 2. He says, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith with your works and I will show you my faith by my works. As the Apostle Paul challenges the church at Philippi to work out their own salvation. What he is doing is he wants to know that they have true faith. He wants to know that they are not just converts, but they are disciples. He wants to know that they aren't just professing Jesus Christ, but that they are living for Christ. So as we look at the text this morning, as we look from verse 12 to verse 30, I want us to see what scripture says about working out our salvation. Working out our salvation. I want to start in verses 12 and 13. The first thing that I want us to see is the inward work, which results in outward action. Our posture of growing in Christ-likeness is fear and trembling. The Apostle Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's important that as we read this, that we understand the biblical definition. Of fear. Fearing God is not to live under the threat that God is going to bring harm to us, but rather the fear of God in Scripture speaks of a profound respect for God. It's a deep reverence for God and His holiness. To fear God is to take God seriously. Our motivation for godly living, our Motivation for service should never be guilt, but rather it should be grace. It's rather than obeying God out of guilty fear, we should obey God out of a deep reverence, a deep respect for what he has done for us and for who he is. Fear and tremblings are the attitudes, fear and trembling are the postures that Christians are to have in pursuing this goal of working out our own salvation. A healthy fear of offending God through disobedience and in all in respect for his majesty and holiness. Obedience and submission to the God we revere and respect is our reasonable service. Romans 12, 1 through 2. And it brings great joy. Psalms 2, verse 11, sums it up perfectly. In Psalms 2, verse 11, it says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So in verse 12, we see this posture 
from which we are to work out our salvation. It's this posture of fear, this posture of trembling, this posture of not wanting to, not wanting to offend God, of, of seeing God in his holiness and his majesty and having just such a deep respect for him that we want to obey him, that we want to live lives that are conformed to the image of his son. But in between verses 12 and 13, there is the word for. It says, wherefore, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. For expresses grounds for an action. So in verse 13, or verse 12, we are to work out our own salvation on the grounds of verse 13, the grounds that God is the one that is working in us. Too many Christians obey God because of an external pressure that is on them and not because of a power that is on the inside. The reason that we can work out is because God is working in. Obedience is not based on our willpower, but rather obedience to God is based on the power that is working in. In us. When you become a Christian, God does not leave you to grow in grace. He does not leave you to grow in spiritual maturity on your own, but rather there is an inward spiritual work that is being done by the Holy Spirit, which dwells within you at the moment of salvation. The Holy Spirit begins to do this work in you, and He gives you not only the desire, but He also gives you the power to do what pleases God. Salvation is worked in believers by the Spirit who justifies us once and for all, but then there is a progressive work that is to be worked out by obedience through the same Spirit unto perfection. So as we look at our text and we see this posture, we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling and, and awe and revere and respect of God, knowing that it's really God that is doing the work in us, which is overflow of what God is doing in me that is now coming out. So as we look, what does this look like practically in the life of a Christian? Well, certainly it means living like Jesus. But we see as Paul moves into the next couple of verses that he describes the attitude that one should have as they, he or she obeys Christ and pursues Christ's likeness. Look at verse 14 through 16 with me. In verse 14, Paul says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine his light to the world, holding forth the word of life. I find it fascinating that out of all the things the Apostle Paul could have commanded us in working out our own salvation. The one thing he goes to is do all things without murmuring and disputing. Paul didn't say pray without ceasing, although he said this here in this context. He doesn't say pray without ceasing. He doesn't say give to the poor or serve in the temple. He doesn't say be strong. He doesn't say anything pertaining to spiritual warfare when it comes to working out our salvation, but rather he admonishes the church at Philippi to stop crying and complaining. Why would Paul 
mentioned the temptation of groaning. I would assume that it's probably because sanctification is hard. Because discipleship is not an easy road. Pursuing holiness, giving generously, practicing hospitality, loving your wife and your kids the way that you should, sharing the gospel and other facets of Christian discipleship could tempt one to complain and murmur. If you remember, the Philippian church was a church that had some internal strife that was going on. In chapter 4, we see that there's two women in the church that are having an argument. Paul doesn't specify over what, but there's, 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 there's contention that's going on in the church there. And not only that, but in verse 28 of chapter 1, we see that there's an external pressure that's on the church as well. And these problems could lead one to both complain to God and complain to one another. See, when the Apostle Paul shows us how to live lives that are working out our salvation, rather than focusing on the fruit, rather than on saying give generously or serve here or study scripture or pray, pray without ceasing, with that, rather than focusing on the fruit of what a Christian is supposed to do, the Apostle Paul focuses on the root. He focuses on the heart of the matter. It's the same thing that Jesus did when he gave the sermon on the mount. On the sermon on the mount, Jesus was not just refreshing the great or the, the Ten Commandments. He said, thou shalt not lust, but then Jesus added on that if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, that you have already committed adultery in your heart. You see, he's aiming to convict the heart, to get to the deeper things that are going on in the life of believers. At the root of murmuring and groaning, just think about it with me for a minute, at the root, when you take murmuring and groaning, when you take complaining and take disputes, at the root of that is displeasure and dissatisfaction. How do we expect God to work in and through us when our hearts are disgruntled? How do we expect to be of the same love and the same mind like he commanded them earlier when there is bitterness and contention? How do we continue in obedience to God, following his will for our life, when we are upset and complain the entire time. When we bought our house in Florida, one of the first things that I started to do was work on the, the outside yard. In the backyard there, it was, it was literally like a jungle. And, and in Florida, there's a lot of creepy crawlies and animals that aren't very friendly or nice, okay? So I wanted to get as much jungle out of my backyard as possible. So I started pulling up all the weeds and bushes and palms and trying to make it as clear as possible. And it was like throughout my whole entire yard, there was this, 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 I don't even know how to describe it. It was like a leaf plant. And from the surface, it didn't seem like this plant was very big. But I remember as I would reach down and grab the plant, it would start to pull up and there would be roots that were shooting through my whole entire yard. It, it expanded the, the whole yard. And I thought it was going to be a simple, easy, just pluck out and I'd be done. But I realized that there was a root system that was pretty much running throughout the whole yard. And this plant, which appeared small above the surface, as I began to dig and I began to uncover the dirt 
that was around it was much deeper and wider than I could ever imagine. And the same is true when it comes to grumbling and complaining. From the surface, our grumbling and our complaining often doesn't seem like a big deal, right? It's really a natural part of who we are as humans, sadly. We always talk about how things are unfair. That's not right. You know, we say things like, oh, I'm not complaining, I'm just venting. Or how about this one? I'm just telling the truth, right? I'm just trying to get something off my chest. But as we began to dig and search underneath the sprout of grumbling, we find that there's a deeper heart issue than we could imagine. And that heart issue is that we're not trusting in the providence of God. God's providence is his caring and his provision for his people as he guides them on their journey of faith through life, accomplishing his purpose in them. In other words, God's providence is that God is infinitely wiser than us and God is in control. So we are to trust him every step of the way. But instead of trusting God and trusting his providence and bringing our disappointments to him and allowing him to steady us and to calm us, we instead let unmet desires fester into discontentment. We grumble when what our heart is really saying when we begin to grumble is, I know better than God. Grumbling is just discontentment made audible. The Greek word for grumbling is the same word that's used in the Old Testament describing the Israelites in the wilderness. If you remember the Israelites as they traveled throughout the wilderness, they were expert grumblers. They were expert murmurers. They grumbled at Marah that the water was bitter when literally three days before God parted the Red Sea and they walked across on dry ground. They grumbled that they were hungry after God had continually provided for them. And God opened up the bakery of heaven and sent fresh manna down onto them. And then guess what? They grumbled because they were tired of eating the same thing over and over. Rather than trusting God's promise as they came into Canaan, they grumbled about driving out its inhabitants. The whole way God was in control, the whole way God was caring for them, the whole way God knew exactly what he was doing, but they had become discontent. They thought God wasn't doing it the right way. They, they thought that they knew more than God knew. And we know that as a result of the grumbling and the murmuring of the Israelites in the wilderness that they missed out on the promised land. And what we learn from that is that grumbling is not just some small Matter grumbling and murmuring and complaining and disputes is a matter that is serious to God. See, the truth is, grumbling steals your joy. How do we combat it then? How do we come against the grumbling of life? How do we then maintain that joyful attitude? And I would suggest to you that the answer is the gospel. Listen, the gospel is not just about saving us 
from hell. It's not just about Jesus bringing us to the Father, but the gospel continually reminds us that we are far better off than we deserve. Considering what we deserve, considering what we should have been given, should keep us from complaining. Listen, when we live in light of the cross, when we live in light of the gospel, and we remember and think about what Christ did for us, it becomes real hard to complain about others. We'll remember how much he forgave us, it becomes real hard to not forgive others. But when we lose sight of the gospel, we begin to go down this dark hole of murmuring. See, when we live in light of Philippians 2, 6 to 11, of Christ coming and dying on the cross for us, we are then able to obey Philippians 2, 14, to do all things without murmurings or disputings. John Newman, he's the man that wrote Amazing Grace. He likened complaining to the folly of his falling scenario. So what he said, suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage breaks down a mile before he gets to the city. Obliged that he has to walk the rest of the way now, what a fool we would think of him if as he's walking to this estate that is waiting on him, he is blubbering and wringing his hand saying, my carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. We must remember that in our own lives, we only have a mile to go. Soon we will get to see Christ. Soon we will be with Christ. We don't deserve such an inheritance. So if we have to walk a mile, we can do it with a song. Listen, grumbling is the opposite of joy. It's the opposite of rejoicing. You cannot possess a spirit and heart of grumbling and a spirit and heart of joy at the same time. If you're a complainer, you lack joy. And if you live in joy, you're not a complainer. And how do we live in joy? We live in joy by living in light of the gospel, by living in light of the cross, by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Listen, Paul didn't grumble when he was still in the prison. Daniel didn't grumble as he was placed into a den full of hungry lions. Joseph didn't grumble when his brother sold him into slavery. Job didn't grumble when he had everything taken from him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't grumble as they stood in the fiery furnace. And most importantly, our Savior didn't grumble as he went to the cross and suffered and died in death that we deserve so that we could live a life that he had earned. But rather, they trusted in the providence of God, knowing that he is in control. Go on to verse 15 with me. In verse 15, Paul says that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. As you move to verses 15 through 16, you begin to see that the primary purpose of 
doing all things without murmuring or complaining is that it enables us to shine as lights Amen. in the world. Grumbling, arguing people don't shine as lights. And being light is the reason that we exist in Christ. The only people who like to be around grumblers are grumblers. You know, they say misery loves company. Paul tells us that grumbling and complaining ruins our witness. The world grumbles, the world complains, but we are to be different. We, if we want to shine like stars in the world, we must resist the temptation to grumble. Listen, when our conversation with other believers, when our conversation among outsiders is filled with negative murmuring, we lose our distinctiveness, we lose our saltiness. The world is crooked, the world is perverse, but we are to be harmless and blameless. Why? Because others are watching you. Others are listening to you. And what are they seeing? What are they hearing? Are you standing out in bright skies in a dark sky? If you walk into any jewelry store, you'll notice that at most jewelry stores, uh, especially the diamonds, are laid out against a black velvet. As that diamond lays there against that dark background and the light begins to hit that diamond. The black velvet provides a contrast that accentuates and brings out the brightness and beauty of the jewelry. And listen, friend, if in the midst of a dark and dreary and wicked world, our lives, our words, our actions are to be like that diamond against the black velvet, it is to shine brightly. Consider what an opportunity we have for making an eternal difference in someone's life simply by speaking a different language than that of the culture. By going through the day avoiding the temptation to grumble and replacing that practice with gratitude, replacing that grumbling with praise. Listen, the truth is at some point, Somebody's gonna offend you. At some point, somebody's gonna hurt your feelings. At some point, somebody is going to upset you. At some point, I will upset you. Your spouse will upset you. Your Sunday school teacher will upset you. The greeters at the door at the door will upset you. What will you do? What about those times you want to have a relaxing? evening, but your spouse tells you she needs help or something? What about when you want a job that's meaningful, but instead you're just stuck pushing papers? When you plan your future, but it seems to never come, how will you respond? Are you going to grumble? Are you going to complain? Listen, we're in our call to shine as lights in a dark world, to be blameless, to be innocent in a crooked and twisted generation. And the way that we are to do that in verse 16 is by holding to the word of life. 
obey the book. I've heard it been said that Baptists are people of the book. In verse 12, Paul says, continue in obedience. So how do we do that? Through God's word, you submit to it, you trust it, you live by it. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We work out our salvation by going to the very source of our salvation, the word of God. Where our hearts and our minds are renewed. And I've heard it said this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Joshua said this book of the law shall not depart out of my mouth, but I will meditate on it day and night. And that, that, that you may be able to observe and do according to all that is written. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have great success. Listen, this book is not just a book of history. It's not just a book of stories, but rather it is the very words of God. Paul tells in 2 Timothy that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, that it's profitable for doctrine, that it's profitable for reproof, for correction, for instructions in righteousness. God's word is sufficient. God's word is sufficient for sanctification. God's word is sufficient for our life, for godliness. It is the words of life. We work out our own salvation through obedience to God's word, shining as lights in the dark as he works in the desire and power to do his good pleasure. And then quickly, I just want to give a brief synopsis of verses 19 through 30. And verses 19 through 30, we see the testimonies of men who have the mind of Christ and who served God with sacrificial obedience. And verses 19 through 30, we see the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And for sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but if you have your Bible open, you can go ahead and look through it. Timothy and Epaphroditus were men who were well acquainted with the church at Philippi. Timothy was there with Paul during his second missionary journey when Paul went and planted and started the church there at Philippi. And Epaphroditus was most likely a pastor in the church. I imagine that the uh, Apostle Paul includes the testimonies of Timothy and Epaphroditus as an encouragement and a personal example that it is possible to be light bearers in the midst of a dark world. Paul first tells the church that he was going to send them Timothy in verses, in verses 19 through believe in verses 19 through 24. In verses 19 through 24, Paul tells the church that he's going to send them Timothy. And he tells them that Timothy is somebody that genuinely cares about others. He says that Timothy is a compassionate servant. He says Timothy is not like the others who seek their own interests. If you remember in chapters 1 and 2, Paul told us about those who seek after their own interests. He mentioned some in Rome who were teaching the gospel out of envy and rivalry, but Timothy was one of those ones who served Christ out of goodwill 
and love. Then after commending Timothy, he begins to praise Epaphroditus. According to chapter 4, Epaphroditus had been sent by the Philippian church to bring Paul a, a, an offering, a, a, a gift of money while he was in prison and to minister to him. Paul says that while Epaphroditus was there ministering to him in his Roman prison cell, that Epaphroditus got sick, got really sick. And Paul explains as he is talking about Epaphroditus and he is, he is commending and praising him. He talks about how Epaphroditus was a compassionate and dedicated friend. He says he was a fellow brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, speaking to the character of Epaphroditus. And then in verse 30, you can look at verse 30 with me. Apostle Paul says, because for the work of Christ, he was nigh or he was close unto death. But listen. Not regarding his life to supply your lack of service towards me. Paul says that Epaphroditus was so sick that he came close to death. But because he was doing a work for Christ, he didn't regard his own life. You know, I think I said a couple of weeks ago, remember the acrostic joy. J-O-Y. Philippians is the book about joy. How do we have joy? It, we have joy by getting things in the right order. J, Jesus. O, others. And Y, yourself. And as we look at the testimonies of Timothy and Epaphroditus, we see that these two men love Jesus and they loved others. We shouldn't elevate them beyond reason, but we have to acknowledge and see them as Paul is using them, as examples worth watching and as men worth following. Listen, Timothy and Epaphroditus are humble, others-focused servants who provide a shining example of working out their salvation in the practical acts of serving without wrong. How do we live in light of the truths of the gospel? In the shadow of the cross, before the throne of God, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, shining as witnesses in a dark world, not grumbling, but holding to the truth of the words of life and rejoicing through sacrificial service, rooted in the grace of God and anticipating the coming day of Christ Jesus. We have our eyes closed.